Amen. You may be seated. So how good was that to worship together again in our sanctuary, huh? Man. Praise the Lord. We have been so excited for this day, looking forward to it for months now. God has blessed our church with this amazing facility. He's blessed us with a great summer of worship in the gymnasium as we have been uh, preparing for this morning. And now uh, we're finally here. Things have come together. Uh, we just, man, God has blessed us tremendously, and we're so thankful to be together worshiping this morning. We still have a few little pieces that we're putting together here uh, as we uh, go over the next few weeks. Uh, you notice we don't have our new chairs in here yet, but those are coming soon. And uh, we're just so thankful. God has truly, truly blessed us. So thanks for being with us this morning. My name is Jason Carlson. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here at Lakes Free. And uh, I'm so thankful that you chose to join us today. For those of you who are watching us online this morning, I want to say hello to you and welcome you as well. And uh, we also have a lot of people downstairs in our fellow Hall this morning, uh, worshiping with us in our family-friendly venue, and so I want to say hello to you as well. Uh, thank you for being here at church with us this morning, and uh, God is good. What a great day as we're here together. Before I get too far into our uh, beginning into our sermon this morning, I just want to mention we had word from our ushers here a moment ago that there is a white Chevy Cobalt out in the parking lot with its lights on. So if you drive a white Chevy Cobalt, you might want to go out there and take a look. Uh, I can't speak to those of you at home whether your lights are on or not, but uh, those in our parking lot here, we do keep an eye open for you, so uh, please go check that out. Well, I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and let's ask God's blessing on our sermon this morning as we enter into a new series looking at the Gospel of John. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here today. We're so thankful for all that you have done in our church over the years, and especially here in the last few months as we've been in a difficult season, a trying season, with worshiping at home and then moving to our parking lot and then to the gymnasium. And, and uh, it's been unusual, Lord, but we're thankful that our church has still remained united, remained committed to you and the mission that you have given us here in the Chisago Lakes area. And God, we just again commit ourselves to you. We dedicate this facility to you, Lord. This is your church. It's always been your church. It will continue to be your church, Lord, and we are here desiring nothing more than your name to be praised, the message of the gospel to be proclaimed, and for lives to be transformed through the good news of the, the grace that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And so, God, we commit this place to you again for those purposes. God, we're just so thankful to be here together as we worship. We're excited for this new sermon series in the Gospel of John. We pray, God, that you would bless it. We pray that you would open our eyes to your truth in ways that maybe we have never seen it before. We pray that we would come to know you better, Lord, and fall more in love with you as we come to learn all about who you are through John's testimony of his time with you. And so, God, we just commit ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, work through your word in our lives this morning. And uh, we just pray that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let me ask you a question this morning as we begin this new ser sermon series in the Gospel of John. What would you do if your son or daughter suddenly disappeared? If your son or daughter mysteriously vanished into thin air and you had no idea where they were? What would you do? To what lengths would you go to find them? 
if you suspected that they were in grave danger. This past week, I finished one of the most fascinating books I've read in recent memory. It's a book titled The Cold Vanish. It's the story of thousands of missing persons here in the United States, missing in our national parks and national forest lands. The government doesn't keep official statistics, but it is estimated today that there are over 1,600 people missing in our national parks and national forest lands throughout the United States today. Many of these people have simply vanished into thin air, unexplainably disappeared. Search and rescue efforts could not find them. The story centers around the search of a father, a man by the name of Randy Gray, and his desperate search over the last three years, since 2017, looking to find his missing son, Jacob. Back in 2017, Jacob, in the early spring, set out on a cross-country bike trip out west into the Olympic National Park in northwestern Washington state. Jacob didn't get too far into the National Park when early one morning a park ranger discovered his bike and his touring trailer parked along the side of the road. No sign of harm, no sign of distress. His gear and all of his equipment was just there, parked on the side of the road with no sign of Jacob. Search and rescue efforts scoured the woods. Dogs and search teams went throughout the National Park looking for Jacob. Dive teams scoured the rivers throughout the National Park. And Jacob had simply vanished into thin air. After the search efforts were called off, Randy Gray, Jacob's father, was not content to leave his son mysteriously vanished. And Randy set, up, set upon himself to go and search out and seek his son. Randy quit his job as a lucrative contractor in Southern California. He purchased a small camper trailer and he moved up full-time to Northwestern Washington, where over the last three years he has searched countless hours for his son Jacob. He estimates that he's hiked hundreds of miles. He swam and scuba dived in over 12 miles of river throughout the Olympic National Park looking for Jacob. He's driven over thousands of miles around Washington State, into Canada, and throughout the western United States, following up leads, searching desperately for his missing son. It's a really powerful story. And as I was reading Jacob's story and the story of his father's search over the last couple of weeks, thinking ahead to this sermon series in the Gospel of John, I couldn't help but think about how striking it was that each and every one of us have a heavenly father who went out in desperate measures in order to search and find us and rescue us from our dire situation. This is what we're going to be looking at together in the coming months as we journey through the Gospel of John, the story of our heavenly father's search and rescue efforts for the children that he created, the children that he so desperately loved that he was willing to go to the ultimate lengths to find us, to rescue us, to save us. The Gospel of John is a powerful book. It's one of the most powerful books in the entire Bible, giving us a vision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of John, the Gospel of John, was written by the Apostle John. 
John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was actually, according to the Gospels, Jesus' closest disciple, his closest, most beloved follower and friend. They had a very unique relationship. We'll see that as we go forward in our series. John also ended up being the longest living disciple. Out of all the 12, John lived until about 98 A.D., when he passed away of natural causes. This was 65 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John wrote his gospel for us as an evangelistic track, an apologetic appeal to people to receive Jesus as the Lord of the universe, the Savior of the world. Later, at the end of the first century, if you've been with us here over the last couple of years, you've seen a number of our sermon series in the, the book of Galatians and 1 John and Revelation earlier this spring and summer, how in the end of the, towards the end of the first century, numerous cults and heresies were springing up in the early church, trying to lead people astray away from the truth of who Jesus really was. And as an old man, John the Apostle recognized the dangers of these heresies and the errors that they were leading people into. And so John determined that he was going to write a definitive record of the life of Jesus Christ and who he was and who he is so that we would know without any mistaking the truth about Jesus that he was God come in flesh, the way, the truth, and the life, the only path to salvation for all of us. And so John, writing his gospel in roughly 85 to 90 AD, towards the end of the first century, was addressing uh, a, a number of heresies that were growing in the church. He wanted us to know the truth of who Jesus was. Interestingly, John is the book of the Bible that we have the earliest evidence for. The earliest manuscript evidence that we have for any of the books of the Bible come from the Gospel of John. We discovered uh, this last century uh, a papyrus fragment. It's called the John Rylands Papyrus. It's a fragment copy of John chapter 18. It's the earliest record of any of the Gospels that we have. It dates to the early 2nd century, probably no later than 20 to 25 years after John originally wrote his gospel. His letter was already being widely circulated. This fragment was discovered in Egypt. And so we know that John's gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, was already in wide circulation very early after it had been written. I love the gospel of John. It's one of my personal favorite books. One of the reasons why I love John so much is because it is one of the most powerful, rich, theologically deep books you'll find, but at the same time, it's a very simple book. It's simple to understand. It's simple to read. In fact, I would be willing to bet that many of you here have at least one, if not numerous, Bible verses from the Gospel of John committed to memory. It's a book that's beloved by many people. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, he once said this of the Gospel of John. He said, the Gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Isn't that a great quote? It's deep enough for an elephant to swim, but shallow enough that a child won't drown. You young kids here this morning, you're going to understand what we share here from the Gospel of John. John uses very simple language. 
He uses some incredible illustrations and metaphors to help us understand who Jesus is. We can all understand John's words. But as we're also going to see, there is tremendous depth and theological meaning and insight found in John's gospel. And we're going to explore those depths together in the coming weeks and months. I want to read our passage this morning, our opening passage. It comes from the prologue of the Gospel of John, the introduction. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, where John introduces us to the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to elaborate in the coming weeks on many of the themes that we're going to explore here this morning, but to begin with, John highlights for us some of the central ideas of who Jesus truly is. Let me read this for us. You can follow along on the screens behind me or in your own Bibles. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. John begins, In the beginning was the Word. Here he uses the term the Word. It's the Greek word logos in reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a powerful passage. So simple, yet so profound. And here in the introduction to his gospel, John reveals for us three incredible truths about the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? John tells us here in the introduction to his gospel. Number one, Jesus is the Logos. The Logos. The Word. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, John tells us. You know, friends, there's an interesting question that people throughout history have wrestled with. Where does life come from? Where does life come from? Where where did all of this come from? Where, Where did life begin? It's a question that philosophers and religions have wrestled with throughout the ages. Scientists have sought answers to the question of where did life come from. And you know something, friends? There are only two possible answers to that question. Life is either the product of a designer, an intelligent designer, a creator, or life is simply an accident. The whole se- a, a result of a whole series of random chance events in the history of our cosmos. Nothing but an accident. Those are the only two options. A designer, a creator, or a whole series of random chance accidental events. Friends, you can't even think of a third option this morning. 
Where did life come from? And sadly, only one of these two options is being presented today to our students in our schools and universities. We've literally been indoctrinating generations of young people into a philosophical worldview known as naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that there is no God, there is no supernatural. Life is simply an accident. We're all here as the result of a whole series of random chance events in the history of our cosmos. This is what is known as the naturalistic worldview. And friends, the real tragedy in this naturalistic worldview is that this is a philosophy from the 19th century that has been totally destroyed by 20th and 21st century science. I'll never forget an experience I had when I was a senior in high school at Eden Prairie High School. I was taking a class called Advanced Biology my senior year. I remember two weeks into our class, our teacher started sharing with us the doctrine of naturalistic evolution, Darwinian naturalism, that life evolved out of non-living matter. She was sharing with us in class one day how four and a half billion years ago, the earth was just a large ocean, a, a nauseous cauldron of bubbling chemicals, bubbling away, blub, 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 blub. All of a sudden, poof! Spontaneously, these chemicals came together and formed the first living organism. Blub, 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 poof, up rose an amino acid. Blub, 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 poof, up rose another amino acid. These amino acids got together and formed peptides and polypeptides, ultimately leading to RNA and DNA, to the first single-celled organism, leading to amoebas, and then the fish and the amphibians and the reptiles and the mammals, onwards and upwards to the great apes, until finally today, here we sit. Isn't that amazing, she said. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, that is kind of amazing. And, and I raised my hand that day in class, and I said, excuse me, teacher, what, what about that Louis Pasteur guy we learned about last week, the first week of class? She said, well, what do you mean? Well, in the very first week of our class, and students, if you're here this morning, you can fact check this. If you look in your textbook, any biology textbook, high school or college level textbook, you will find within the very first chapter typically, if not a section, a whole chapter on a guy by the name of Louis Pasteur. He's known as the father of modern day biology. You might recognize the term Pasteur, pasteurization of milk. This is where we get that term from, from Louis Pasteur. And in 1846, in Louis Pasteur's laboratory in Paris, France, Louis Pasteur, once and for all time, scientifically disproved the idea known as spontaneous generation, that non-living chemicals, non-living matter, could spontaneously, poof, turn into a living organism. And he called this proof the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis, the fundamental law of all biology, says life only comes from life. It does not come from non-living matter. And I asked my teacher that day in class, I said, excuse me, ma'am, but last week you told us that life only comes from life. It does not come from non-living matter. And now today you're telling us that four and a half billion years ago, life arose out of a nauseous cauldron of bubbling chemicals bubbling away. I said, how does that happen? And friends, I kid you not, my teacher, she said to me, well, Jason, we have to assume by faith that somehow this took place. <laughs> I, I raised my hand again and I just said very politely, I said, excuse me, teacher, I thought this was a science class. 
You know, I'm, I'm not here for your philosophical speculations of faith. I want to talk about the evidence. What is the scientific evidence? And it's interesting to me, friends, how for the last few generations we have been indoctrinating children into this belief that they're nothing more than accidents evolved out of slimy algae. And it goes contrary to all observed science throughout the world. And I want you to think about the implications of this. When you teach generations of young people that you're nothing but an accident, an animal evolved out of slimy algae, why would we not expect when we turn on the news at night to see people living like animals in a world that's running wild as if we're nothing more than animals evolved out of the slimy algae? See, friends, your worldview matters. How you answer the question of origin matters. And here at the outset of John's gospel, we discover that life is not the result of a cosmic accident. And we are not simply animals evolved out of slimy algae, but John tells us that there is a God. There is a creator. And with that, our lives have ultimate meaning and incalculable worth. Here in the opening three verses of our passage this morning, John reveals three truths or I'm sorry, four truths about the Logos for us here in these first three verses. John tells us, number one, that the Logos, Jesus Christ, is eternal. The Logos is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Those words, in the beginning, should sound familiar to you. John is making a direct allusion here, a direct connection to the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the book of Genesis tells us. And here in John chapter 1, verse 1, John is introducing to us the story of a new creation, the story of new life, telling us in the beginning, Jesus was there. The Greek word was that John uses here implies that the Logos was already in existence. The Logos was there at the beginning, pre-existing. He was there. John secondly tells us that the Logos is personal. Not only personal, but distinct from God the Father. In other words, there's a plurality to God. The word with God that John uses here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, he says. With God in the Greek is the word pros, Pros in the Greek means to be towards something. It, it implies a face-to-face -face relationship between two things. It, it's a word that implies accompaniment. In other words, it's a relational word. And so here we learn that the Logos is personal and was in relationship with God. Thirdly, John tells us that the Logos is fully God. Not only is there plurality to God, but there is a unity to God. The Greek here literally reads, and God was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with God the Father. He was distinct from God the Father, but he was in essence exactly the same as God the Father. Here we begin to see hints of the doctrine that will come to be known as the Trinity. 
We'll see John elaborate on the doctrine of the Trinity later in our series, but here we discover there's a plurality to God, and the Logos, Jesus, is fully God. Not only that, but fourthly, John tells us that the Logos is the creator of all things. John says in verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Jesus was there in the beginning, pre-existing all creation, and not one thing in the universe came into existence apart from Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing, friends? Shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim are these incredible truths. Now, some of you might be thinking here this morning, well, why does John use the term Logos for Jesus Christ? I mean, why doesn't John just start right from the beginning talking about Jesus? What's up with this term, the Logos? Well, friends, we need to recognize that John was seeking to build a bridge to an unbelieving audience. Remember, I told you earlier, John was writing this gospel as an evangelistic tract to nonbelievers. He was trying to reach both Jews who didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but also Gentiles who didn't recognize the God of Israel and certainly not Jesus as the Messiah or the Savior of the world. And Jews and Gentiles alike both recognized the term, the word. This was a familiar term to both of these groups. For the Jews, the Jews recognized the word as the creative power of God. When we read the Old Testament, we find the term, the word, appear over and over again in regards to God's creative authority, his creative power. Psalm 33, 6 and 9, for example, King David says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Old Testament recognized the word of God as the creative power of God. What about the Greeks? Well, friends, if you were to go back 2,600 years, you would discover a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. Heraclitus was the first of many Greek philosophers who taught the concept of the Logos, the Word, as the all-powerful, life-giving, sustaining power behind the universe. The Greeks believed that there was this impersonal force that gave life to all things. But the Greek philosophers, they didn't know the Logos relationally. They didn't know the Logos personally. They didn't think it was possible to have any kind of relationship with the Logos. And so here at the outset of his gospel, John is revealing clearly to all people the true identity of the word, the God of the Old Testament who created the world and the mysterious life-giving power behind the universe of the Greek philosophers. That word, or logos, John says, is Jesus Christ. Friends, there is a God, and he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a truth that changes everything. If that's true, that changes everything about our understanding of creation, about our understanding of the world, about our understanding of ourselves, about history, about the future. If Jesus truly is the Logos, that's a revolutionary concept, friends. The second thing John tells us here in our passage this morning, he he shares in verses 4 through 11 in the longest imagery that he uses here in his opening he says that jesus is the light he is the logos but he is also the light 
In verse 4, in him was life. We're going to talk about life in a minute. But that life, he says, was the light of men. And then John goes on to describe the light that Jesus brought over the next few verses. Friends, what does light do? Light brings illumination. And Jesus Christ, as the light, when he came into the world 2,000 years ago, he brought the illumination of God. He brought the understanding and the recognition of who God was, his truth, his will for our lives, the reality of our sin-sick desperation without him, and the path, the path that ultimately leads to our salvation and fullness of life. Jesus brought that illumination into the world. But John tells us here at the outset of his gospel that while the light shone, the world did not understand the light. Not in the testimony of John the Baptist, as verses 6 through 8 talk about. We're going to talk about John the Baptist next week. Nor did the world see the light in the light himself, in Jesus. In fact, John tells us here that not only did the world not understand the light, the world rebelled against the light the world rebelled against the light pastor max lucado who's written a number of popular devotional books shares a powerful parable about this section of the gospel of john i want to read this for you this morning it's a story about a tribe of people who lived in a dark cold cave these cave dwellers would huddle together and cry against the chill Loud and long they wailed. It was all they did day after day. It was all they knew to do. The sounds in the cave were mournful, but the people didn't know it, for they had never known joy. The spirit in the cave was death, but the people didn't know it, for they had never known what real life is. But one day they heard a different voice. I've heard your cries, it announced. I felt your chill and seen your darkness. I have come to help you. The cave people grew quiet. They had never heard this voice. Hope sounded strange to their ears. How can we know you have come to help? Trust me, he answered. I have what you need. The cave people peered through the darkness at the figure of the stranger. He was stacking something, then stooping and stacking more. What are you doing? One cried nervously. The stranger didn't answer. What are you making? Another shouted even louder. There was still no response. Tell us, demanded a third. The visitor stood up and spoke in the direction of the voices. I have what you need. With that, he turned to the pile at his feet and he lit it. The wood ignited, flames erupted, and light filled the cavern. The people turned away in fear. Put it out, they cried. It hurts to see it. Light always hurts before it helps, he answered. Come, step closer. The pain will soon pass. Not I, declared a voice, nor I agreed a second. Only a fool would risk exposing his eyes to such light, said another. The stranger stood next to the fire. Would you prefer the darkness? Would you prefer the cold? Don't listen to your fears. Take a step of faith. For a long time, no one spoke. The people hovered in groups, covering their eyes. The fire builder stood next to the fire. It's warm here, he invited. He's right. One from behind him announced, it is warmer. The stranger turned to see a figure slowly stepping towards the fire. I can open my eyes now, she proclaimed. I can see. Come closer, invited the fire builder. 
She did. She stepped into the ring of light. It's so warm. She extended her hands and sighed as her chill began to pass. Come, everyone, feel the warmth, she invited. Silence, woman, one cried. Dare you lead us into your folly, the cave dwellers shouted. Leave us alone. Leave us and take your light with you. She turned to the stranger. Why won't they come? They choose the chill. For though it's cold, it's what they know. They'd rather be cold than to change. And live in the dark, she asked. And live in the dark. How tragic, friends. The way that our world rejects the light and misses out on all that Jesus came to show us. And even to this very day, the world still rebels against the light. The world still rejects the light, but John tells us that the light cannot be overcome because it is the light of truth. It is the light of God. Friends, I'll tell you something today. The world needs the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ like never before. Politics are not going to save this world. Social justice causes are not going to save this world. Economic revolutions are not going to save this world. All of these things are symptomatic of our deeper sin sickness and our rebellion against God. We need the light. And Jesus has commanded us He's commissioned us, his people, his church, to shine that light into the world. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, that we, the church, are the light of the world. We're to bring that illumination that Jesus first brought into the world around us. We're to display the light of God's glory, the light of God's truth, the hope of the salvation that's available in him. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. What kind of light are you? Are you, are you a nightlight or a spotlight? Are you a nightlight or a spotlight? See, a lot of Christians go through life like nightlights. And their light shines, but their light shines not very brightly. In fact, for a lot of Christians, they actually end up hiding their light even more by the way they live unrecognizable to the world trapped in darkness. Friends, our world today doesn't need nightlights. Our world today needs spotlights. Christians who shine brightly the light of the truth into the darkness of this world, displaying the hope that is ours in the person of Jesus Christ. What kind of light are you? Is your light shining today into the darkness? Our world needs more spotlights. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Friends, I want to encourage you, let your light shine. Lastly, this morning, John tells us that not only was Jesus the Logos and the light, but thirdly, Jesus was and is the life. The term life here that John uses in the Greek is the Greek word zoe, Z-O-E, Zoe. It's one of John's most favorite words. He uses it over 30 times throughout his gospel in reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the life. You know, friends, one of the most interesting features of John's gospel is that he doesn't reveal his thesis statement to us until much later, the very end of his book. 
If you're a college student here this morning or a high school student, you'll know that when you write a research paper, typically you put your thesis statement front and center. You're going to explain to your reader what you're writing about. But John doesn't give us his thesis statement until the very end of his gospel. In John 20, 30-31, we find his thesis statement. John tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write his gospel, friends? We're going to see over the next few months. John wrote this specifically to lead us into belief in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? The word believe that John uses here in the Greek is pisteo. It means to trust, to believe, to be faithful. It's more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just intellectually believing that Jesus is God. James, Jesus' brother in James 2.19 says, You believe in God? Great, good for you. Even the demons believe in God. That's not the kind of belief John's talking about here. True belief, according to Scripture, is a faith that leads to action. It's a faith that trusts Jesus as Savior, resulting in a life of humble, ongoing obedience to him as Lord. John himself is a great example of this. John and his brother James, we're going to see in John chapter 4, how John and his brother James left everything behind to follow Jesus. They left their father, they left their fishing boat, they left their careers, and they got up and they followed Jesus for the rest of their lives. James, John's brother, would go on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He would one day become the first of the disciples to be martyred for his faith. John would be transformed from one whose nickname used to be the Son of Thunder due to his rash and violent temper to one who was later in life known as the Apostle of Love. John would go on to serve Christ his entire life, even into exile on the island of Patmos as an old man. Friends, please understand, when John calls us to believe, believing in Jesus is an active, living, continuous trust in him. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is truly God come in flesh? Do you believe that he alone is the Savior of the world? And are you willing to humble yourself before him? And call him Lord. Notice here in verse 31, friends. Notice here in verse 31, John says this believing is the key to having life. You ever had somebody say to you, get a life? John says, get a life, people. Get a life. It's only found in Jesus Christ. Life to the full here and now and life eternal beyond the grave. And friends, why would we think it would be any other way than life being found in the one who is the giver of all life. You need to be close to Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look again at our passage this morning. Look how John concludes our passage, verses 12 through 13. Here we find an incredible statement. Verse 12, John says, But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, what's John talking about here? He's talking about life. He's talking about the new life in Jesus Christ, being born again as children of God. And then notice what John says in verse 13 about this new life as a child of God. 
He says you can have the right to become a child of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, notice what John says about this new life as a child of God. It's not of blood. In other words, it's not about your race or your ethnicity or your nationality. You cannot be born into a right relationship with God. Secondly, John says it's not of the will of the flesh. In other words, there is not one thing you can do to earn your way to this relationship as a child of God. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't merit it. John then says, thirdly, it's not the will of man. In other words, no human authority can give you this life. Not Buddha, not Mohammed, no pope, no priest, no human authority in this world can grant this kind of life. John says it's only from God. This new life comes from God alone. The Apostle Paul describes this same reality like this in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. New life, friends, is a gift of God. It comes from believing in Jesus Christ, and it's a gift. Who among us here doesn't love a gift? But friends, you see, the thing about a gift is a gift needs to be received. God's offered us a gift. He holds out the promise of new life in Jesus Christ. But he says, will you receive it? Will you trust it? Will you embrace it as your own? That's the challenge that John is going to hold out before us throughout our series. I hope that none of us here misses that opportunity to receive Jesus as the gift that leads to life and life eternal, life to the full. And I hope that those of us here who have already received that life would make the commitment to go into this world and let our light shine brightly, the hope of the gospel, so that others may also come to know the great light that is found in Jesus Christ. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together to worship you. And we thank you for your word and your testimony of your Son, Jesus Christ, given to us by the Apostle John. Lord, you are the Logos, the creator of all things. You are the light that illuminates the truth of God for the world. You are the life, the source of life here and now, life to the full and life eternal evermore. We thank you, Jesus, that these things are all true of who you are. And I pray, God, that each one of us here might know those truths intimately, deeply, that we might live faithfully for those truths so that others might come to know the truth through our lives as we serve as your ambassadors in this world. God, if there's anybody here this morning, if there's anybody watching online this morning who hasn't received you as the Logos, as the light, as the source of life for them, I pray that they this morning might turn to you by faith and believe and follow you in humble obedience as the source of our life, the Savior of the world. We thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand up this morning as we share our benediction. 
As we leave today, our ushers are going to dismiss you row by row, so please remain seated where you are until the ushers uh, signal for your row to exit, and you're free to use any of the doors as you exit the sanctuary. Uh, but again, we'd encourage you to make a timely exit of the church today. We have another service coming in afterwards, and in order to maintain our good social distancing measures, we would ask your cooperation with a, with a timely exit. Let me leave you with these great words from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And now, my friends, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, friends. Turn the sun.